All right, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Oh, so nice to see you today. Uh, my name is Billy, as Chris said. I'm one of the pastors here. And listen, I'm just so excited to be gathering together. As, as Chris said, we've got five campuses. We've got a lot of people that call Cornerstone home that are visiting Cornerstone all the time. And really, it's just a joy and an honor to be together as we take our next steps. We all have a next step with Christ, and I'm happy to share a little bit of that with you today. Well, uh, speaking of today, let's talk about where we're headed, uh, not only today, but this week. This week is called Holy Week when you look at the traditional Christian calendar. Some of you grew up in, in traditional, more Christian like uh, churches and denominations, and you, you observed uh, different things throughout Holy Week. Today is obviously Palm Sunday. Uh, that's the first part of, Palm, of, of uh, Holy Week. And then we get to the Last Supper, which is on Maundy Thursday. Some of you may, again, have uh, like, you hung out on, on Thursday night, and you have a Passover meal. It's kind of the preparatory process to, to Easter Sunday. And then, of course, Good Friday. Saturday, we call that Black Saturday because Christ is in the tomb. And then we have Resurrection Sunday. That's Holy Week. So this is the week when it originally happened that changed all of human history. It changed everything. So that's our theme as we move into next weekend. This changes everything. And what I want to do is I want to look at what the this is. We have a slide. We do. I promise you, yes, in Jesus' name. Here we go. Um, this, what's the this? The this is what we're gonna unpack throughout all of this week. And I wanna start by asking a question, a simple question, and this is our sermon today. And the question is, why the cross? Why the cross? Why did the cross have to happen? Why is our forgiveness contingent upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, God's son? What's the logic in God's mind behind this? I was reading a quote from a skeptic, someone who's antagonistic to Christianity, and here's what he said. He said, if you and I sin against each other, the Christian Bible demands that we forgive. And yet, in that forgiveness process, nobody's death is necessary for that to happen. So why can't God then just do the same thing he asks of us? Why does there have to be a cross? Interesting question. Would you agree? Yeah, it's a good question. Let me press it a little further. Why did God organize the cross and the things that we're talking about today in such a way that Jesus had to die such a brutal death at Calvary? Could it have happened another way? As you're aware, most likely, and maybe you're not, but man, crucifixion was a hideous thing. It's actually regarded as one of the most barbaric ways a human being can die. And the Romans did it you know, better than anybody else. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. Just outrageously horrific. Systematically breaking the human body down piece by piece, slowly with the maximum amount of pain as to not put the person into a, an unconscious state. Like, stay awake and then draw that out as long as possible. Sometimes, in many cases, four to five days before the person was to pass. Why is this the way that Jesus had to die? This is horrible, isn't it? Some of the movies we can see and, and this, the historical depictions, it was actually so nauseating for the Christians in the first two centuries of Christian history. It was so nauseating that they didn't use the cross in any of their symbolism. Just a, a depiction of the cross. Nobody wanted to see a cross because of the emotion and the terror that it invoked in their hearts. They just couldn't bear to face it for the first couple hundred years. Gradually, though, Christians started to adopt its use in their symbolism. Actually, I found the very first uh, archaeological evidence of the use of a cross by Christians 
I want to I'll show it to you. It's from a manuscript in the late 190s, maybe 210, that, that era. This is a, a manuscript from one Christian to another. It's an original Greek here. And it's not a Bible, it's not a Bible manuscript. It's just a, a letter of correspondence. And if you've got to blow up this one word and you see this curious symbol, this is not a Greek letter. This is a cross. This is actually uh, two Greek letters smashed together. A tau and a row. A tau looks like a T and a row is an R, but it looks like a P, and you put them on top of each other. We call this a stalrogram. Stauros is the Greek word for cross, and then gram is the Greek word for writing. So you have the, a written cross. And there's, this is it. This is the first time it comes up. Now, by the way, if I were a tattoo-getting guy, which I'm not, for many reasons, um, I probably belong in a library more than I do a tattoo parlor. Um, plus, my wife won't let me get a tattoo, so that's really a true reason. But if I were a tattoo-getting guy, that's the tattoo I would have. I would have this cross, this OG cross. Why? Because nobody has this tattoo. Nobody has it, and so it's super dope. It's the dopest boss's tattoo. Can you imagine, you just have this on your arm, and some of you are stronger than I am, and so it would be like even more, you know, oh, like, so, and then people, hey, bro, what's, what's up with that tat? What is that tat? And then guess what? You get to tell them the story of the cross, and, and it's ministry, right? It's ministry, and for tattoos in general. Jesus has a tattoo, it says in Revelation, when he comes down, right on his thigh, he has a tattoo. So if you're a Christian and you have a tattoo, then you're being just like Jesus, so good for you. I, <laughs> I can't do that, apparently, so that's okay. But here we go. Um, that's the tattoo piece of this sermon. Now you have a theology of tattoos. That's gonna be some of the biggest takeaway of any of you in this whole sermon, and that's not even in my notes. It's completely free. But here's the point. Crosses are everywhere now, and back then they, weren't, they were very rare. Emperor Constantine in the 300s, he, he uh, outlawed crucifixion in the Roman Empire, and then the cross became prolifically used. And it became the number one symbol of who we are. We're people of Christ's cross. But then why the cross in the first place? So that's today's message. Let's look at a passage that's gonna help us get some answers. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter two, which is in your New Testaments. 1 Peter chapter two, we're gonna look towards the end of this chapter, the last paragraph. We're gonna look a little bit at verse 22 and read through 25, and then we're gonna skip down and get get a, one little sort of summary passage in chapter three, and I'll throw that on the screen in just a second. So here's what Peter says as he helps us answer our question today. He said, Jesus committed no sin. Jesus committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when people hurled their insults at Christ when he was on the cross, he did not retaliate. Jesus didn't do anything in return. When he suffered, Christ made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, his father. Verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so, so that we might die to sins and live for forgiveness, live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Skip down, if you can, to verse 18 of chapter three, where Peter sums all of this up in this passage. It's kind of regarded as one of the most concise descriptions of the gospel that we have in one verse in the New Testament. Here he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. 
So here we have a lot of, of teaching from Peter about what was happening on the cross. And I just kind of want to summarize Peter's logic here. I'll give you this and then we'll, we'll, we'll deep dive. Here's, here's kind of a summary sentence of what we just read. The cross was where our sins were transferred over to Jesus. The cross was a particular place in time and in history where a cosmic legal transaction took place, a transfer happened, an exchange occurred, a substitution took place. So when Christ died on the cross, guys, once and for all, it was just a one-time thing, the sinless, righteous Jesus legally exchanged himself for the unrighteous person. The Apostle Paul also teaches this almost word for word in his writings. You can find that in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says it this way, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Almost the same concept, just worded slightly differently. Peter and Paul are teaching the exact same thing, that at the cross, an exchange took place. Theologians have a name for this. It's quite simple. They call it the great exchange. The great exchange took place at Calvary. And it's so great because God is perfectly just. He's perfectly fair. He's in his ontological essence. That's who he is. That doesn't mean that life itself right now is always fair, but that means when God has full reign and free reign to wrap all this up, he will judge correctly and rightly every time. He will make no mistakes. But the same God, in this instance, allows a one-time occurrence when someone would be treated completely unfairly. Have you ever thought about this? A righteous person, Jesus would be treated as though he were unrighteous. And so God allowed this one time unfair exchange to happen. There's something about an unfair trade that none of us like. We just, it sort of triggers our justice meters when we see something that's not right, that's not fair, that's inequitable, an inequitable transaction. Uh, I think maybe, maybe we could trace it back to being in the cafeteria as kids, right? When you got that bully in the cafeteria who's trying to pawn off his gross sack of wilted carrots on that kid who's got his homemade mother's cookies, you know, and he's trying to do that trade, and he's putting pressure on this poor weak kid, and you're sitting there watching that, and you're like, hey, kid, don't do that trade. Don't do that trade. He's, he's bullying you. He's trying to take advantage of you. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do that trade. Why? Because it's not right, right? Is anybody listening? I mean, this is, this is like inherent in us. It's just like, oh, and it's not just inherent inside of our hearts and our minds. We actually have legal precedent in our law system, in our legal system. You lawyer types will know this. It's called the doctrine of unconscionability. The doctrine of unconscionability is a provision in our law that basically says when a transaction that's too one-sided violates the sensibilities of good conscience, the law steps in and says, no, you can't do that. And so if it's taken to court, the law will step in. No, you, you swayed this person. You took advantage of this person in such a way that it violates sensible sort of like what, when exchanges happen. And so the, the law says, no, you can't do that. And so we just don't like an unfair transaction. I'll tell you a story about one that almost happened to me. So I was taking a flight 
to, actually, we're going to Switzerland. This was last year. Um, we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Switzerland is where my family's from, and I got to go on a trip to see the readers in the village where my father was born and all my Swiss relatives. And, um, and so we're on the plane. We haven't taken off yet. So, so you guys know flying economy, right? It sucks. It's the worst. It's Satan's domain. You know why? Because... You, you just you just sit down in the seat and then and then you, it's like you're eating your knees and and there's there's shoving as much humanity in the smallest space possible in this tin can that's flying through the air and they blow some stale air on you I guess as sort of compensation or whatever and so you're in economy but then they have this product right for 150 bucks or so you can pay for economy plus anybody know about this little thing so Economy Plus is the exact same seat, except you get two more inches of legroom. Oh, thanks, United. Thank you. They're so good at extracting all of our money. And so they're the worst. But it's just, it is what it is. So I paid the 150 bucks, and I'm sitting in my row, and I'm enjoying my two whole extra inches of, of legroom. And before the flight took off, um, I'm getting situated, and a guy comes up. He comes walking up from the back of the plane, and he stands right here, and I'm in the aisle, so this is me, and this is the aisle, this is the guy, and he says, excuse me, sir, uh, I would like to ask you if you wouldn't mind trading seats with me. I would like to sit closer to my girlfriend. And I'm sitting, I'm like, man, what are you talking about? And I look over, and there's, no, there's not even a person sitting next to me. So I'm like, what are you doing? And then I'm kind of looking around for this girl. I don't think he had a girlfriend. I, think, I don't think anybody would date this dude. Anyways. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, so it turns out this guy is kind of going around this little section. He's trying to, he's trying to trade up for free because he just wanted a free upgrade. The little weasel. And I, I had read about this in a travel blog and it was happening, so I was prepared. <laughs> so I stood up and boy, he was short. He was like eight inches shorter than me. And I'm, so I'm looking down on him. Hey, little fella, how's it going down there? And he's looking up at me like, yeah, well, you give me more leg room. And I'm like, you're crazy. You're a little punk. And so I said, hey, you know, I got an idea. How about we, I'll sell, I, I paid extra for this seat. I, I have Venmo. You Venmo me 300 bucks. And once funds have transferred to my account, I'd be happy to trade places with you, pal. Let's do that deal. And then he looks at me and he just doesn't say anything. And he just like toddles off, right? And then you can kind of hear this applause, like the plane, like, oh, justice is served. What a, right? So, okay, true confession, that last part didn't happen. All right, here's what really happened. <laughs> so everything happened except for the end, and I didn't stand up. Actually, Christy, she just so sweetly just completely put him in his place. And before I knew it, he was in the back of the plane again, and everybody's applauding, and we're looking at my sweet wife going, yes, justice, girl, you got it going. And, and it was a good thing. But here's the point. The point of this crazy story is nobody likes an unfair trade. Do you like an unfair trade? We don't like it. And yet, and yet, the essence of the Christian message is an unfair trade had to happen, it had to occur in order for us, in order for us to have relationship with God. And so Jesus willingly, he, didn't, he wasn't coerced, he wasn't forced, he willingly disadvantages himself in this exchange so that you and I can be right with God. Why would he do such a thing? There's only one reason, and one reason alone. 
because of his love for us. His love for me, his love for you motivated him to make that unfair trade and to offer himself up in our, in our place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Isn't that cool? All right. So this is a time where we just thank you, God. Let's talk about this. Let's, let's dig into this a little. Can we nerd out just a little bit more? Let's nerd out a little bit more. I want to talk about the terms righteous and unrighteous for a moment. We just read those terms in the passage. And those words, when we come, when we come across them in the New Testament, those are not religious words. Those are legal, legal words, words taken from the legal vernacular. And in the original Greek, we go back to Greco-Roman life, and a person who was right with the law, in other words, they had no warrants out for them, they had no claims on them from the law, they were considered to be righteous. So they were free and clear, a person was righteous by the law, free and clear, they could come and go in as they pleased, and they were not under any obligation. Conversely, someone who was unrighteous meant that a law had been broken, and when a law is broken, the law says to the person, well, now that the law is broken and you're the cause of it and it's proven, then you have to make amends. You have to make reparations. You have to make that right. You're now on the hook for the law to be made right. And there's some kind of a penalty. And the point is you owe something. Now, you may owe time, uh, maybe free service to the empire. You may owe jail time. You may own a fine. It kind of depends on what infraction was broken. But the point is, legally, you are unrighteous. You owe. You have liabilities. You're not right. And this is swimming around here, this concept around the great exchange. So let me illustrate this. Um, I know tomorrow is the next day in Holy Week, but what else is also tomorrow? Tax day. Hey, tax day. Woo! Not one amen. Not one dang amen. Okay, good. Yes. Uh, so since it's tax day, let me use an IRS illustration. And um, you're welcome for ruining your beautiful Sunday for this. Okay. Here's the illustration. Hypothetically, you're doing your taxes, and it turns out that you owe the IRS way more than you thought. Now, this, of course, this year may be the real story because the tax laws have changed, as we all know. And I personally am paying way more taxes than I ever have in the last 10 years. So thank you, White House. Thank you, Congress. Thank you, Senate. You all are worse. You and United should get together and go on a date and have just the suckiest relationship ever. <laughs> all right. That's not... That's not the point. <laughs> um, I don't, that's, okay. Um, this is a made up story. So in this story, the amount is so much, it's actually overwhelming. It's more than your entire net worth. And you're not liquid. Not that that would matter. You're not liquid, you're not, what is the opposite of liquid? You're, you're just toast is what you are. You're toast and the IRS is about to come in and destroy your life. Except at the last minute, your friend comes in and she says, listen, I heard about what's happening and I actually heard about the amount and I have it. My net worth is exactly the same amount as what you owe and I'm going to pay this off. And the IRS guy's there and he's like, I don't care. I don't care who pays it. And he, maybe he fills out a form and he makes it all you know, copacetic or whatever. And then they proceed to ruin her instead of you. 
So they empty her accounts, they impound her car, they take the wedding ring off of her finger and sell it at a government auction, all of her wealth, all of her equity, everything of value in her home, her couch, her parakeet, everything is taken and it's sold. And the amount that is the result of all of this chaos is exactly your debt. She has been righteous IRS-wise, but she's treated as though she's unrighteous IRS-wise. Your liabilities were transferred to her, and now she's destroyed. Piece by piece, she's completely unraveled. This is exactly what happened at the cross. Do you see this? Your liabilities were shifted to Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the gospel message. All right, there's an important thing to note when we're looking at this, that when Jesus took on our unrighteousness, it does not mean that Jesus literally became an unrighteous person. All right, so when he was on the cross and the great exchange was taking place, Jesus didn't start to act all selfish and he didn't literally become a liar in that moment or a, a, a murderer or a deceiver or a blasphemer or an adulterer or whatever, right? He, 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 didn't, he didn't actually become literally those things, not at all. In fact, quite the opposite. And Peter gives us a, a clue on this. I'll just put up the, the, the passage we just read, verse uh, 23. It says, when they hurled their insults, this is while Christ was on the cross, what did Jesus do? He did not retaliate. He didn't make counter threats. If you look at the other gospel accounts, the passion accounts, you'll see this even uh, expanded more where Christ is on the cross and he's, he's forgiving the people that put him up there. He's caring for the criminals, the, the guilty criminal that is with him, the, the next crossover, and they're dying together and he's ministering to this guy. And he's like, hey, in a minute, you're gonna, we're gonna be in heaven together. He's caring for the needs of his mother, who's, a, who's just like, she can't believe what's happening. And she's, she's there and he's ministering to her. So Peter is telling us something very important, that Jesus stayed sinless at all times. The, 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 the fact that he's utterly flawless, he's perfectly beautiful during the crucifixion, Peter is letting us know that Jesus didn't become literally unrighteous. He became legally unrighteous. He didn't become literally sinful. He became legally sinful. And what happened? He was destroyed. Piece by piece, he was unraveled. Who would do this? Who would do this for somebody? Just think about that for a second. Who who would pay this price? Who would willingly submit to this type of an exchange? And that's who Christ is. That's who our Savior is. What a wonderful Savior we have in Jesus. What a wonderful Savior we have. Oh, I just stand amazed at who he is and what he has done. And as we approach Holy Week, we get a chance to look at this with a fresh set of eyes. That's a reason. We could stop there. I'm going to give you one other quick reason. The great exchange took place. Here's the second reason I'll unpack today. Again, we'll derive it from our, our, our core verse here in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. We talked about the righteous for the unrighteous. Here's, here it is, to bring you to God. To bring you to God. What is Peter saying? He's saying the cross happened to bring us to God. 
here's the teaching of Christianity on this. We have to be brought to God because we can't get to him on our own. We have to be brought to God. Jesus has to bring us to God because our sins prevent us from having access to the Father. My sin, my unrighteousness creates this impenetrable, unscalable wall, a barrier that no amount of moral fiber or, or, or strength or ability or giftedness or natural charm or anything that I possess in my own humanity can, can transcend that barrier. That spiritual barrier is impenetrable. Therefore, God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to come and get me. He has to come and find me. He has to search for me and come find me and when he finds me he grabs me and he carries me and then he brings me to God in his strong capable arms that is the teaching of the Christian message amen somebody said woohoo I think some other people may be excited about this because we should be this is actually amazing let me illustrate this a good a good friend of mine um, any San Jose Sharks fans here oh wow you have a we have a lot we had almost none last service. Hmm. What about you hockey fans makes you come at the 11? I think I may guess. I went to a, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. That's the big, you know, uh, thing there. I love hockey. One of my good friends, Curtis Brown, was a, a player for the Sharks a few years back. Some of you know Brownie. He's now part of the Comcast Sports Network. He covers the, uh, he covers the team. He's, you know, he's a little bit ugly, but he's, you know, actually kind of handsome in some weird ways, but um, just a super cool guy. His wife, Amy, they're strong Christians. They're just a great family. But back in the day, sometimes I would go to Sharks games and then I would hang out with Curtis in the locker room after the game. It was a lot of fun. But I could never get into the locker room all by myself. Curtis would have to leave the locker room. He would have to come find me he have to get me, and then he'd have to bring me into the locker room. Otherwise, I had absolutely no access back there. If I tried to do that all by myself, I would get pepper sprayed, tased, arrested, and tossed out. All in that order, somehow. And this is a rough analogy of what Peter is telling us. My buddy Curtis provided the access. Why? Because he belonged there. I didn't belong there on my own. As long as I was with Curtis, I was 100% fine. This is what Peter's teaching us, that Jesus has to come find us and bring us to God. But people get this wrong all the time. Uh, they don't understand this. I'll hear this. Every once in a while, someone will say to me, you know, Billy, um, I would love to come back to church. I used to go to church when I was you know, younger and stuff, but now I'm kind of, I've been away from the church for a while, and I plan on coming back when I get my life together. Has anybody ever heard this or said this? You've heard this before, like something like, yeah, I'd like to get close to the Lord. And maybe, I, maybe I could become a Christian, but boy, I got to clean up my act first, man. I, I, I'm, I'm, I got to quit partying. I got to quit smoking dope. I got to, you know, stop. Well, I guess maybe you can smoke dope legally, but you know what I'm saying, whatever. Uh, I don't know. That's, I, these are complicated things. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm in this relationship and it's not right. I'm not living right. And I need to clean things up. I got to get my life together first and then, and then I'll be ready for the Christian life. But that's not how this works. You can't bring yourself to God. You can't make yourself righteous. You can't make yourself righteous by doing certain things and you can't make yourself righteous by not doing other things because only Jesus can bring you to God. You have to let Christ 
find you. You have to let Christ grab a hold of you. You have to let Christ carry you to the Father. You cannot get there on your own strength. You cannot get there using, you know, oh, well, I've done more good than bad in that sort of weird calculation that so many of us try to figure out about our life. You have to let Christ bring you to God. And how do you do that? How does one do that? It's very simple. You just trust Jesus that he is capable of doing that and you just put your faith in him. That's it. I know. It, do, it doesn't even seem fair, does it? That all you have to do, the response, the work is done. Everything's done, right? It's all finished. God did it all. Jesus did it all. All that's left is for me to just simply put my faith, put my trust, put my like, okay, that's me. I need you to carry me. And then you just believe that. And then the great exchange kicks in for you personally. That's the message of the gospel. It's incredible. This is why the cross happened. The great exchange needed to happen, the unfair trade, and we all needed to be brought to God. And there was only one who could make that happen. That's why Jesus willingly endures the cross for me and for you. All right, we've addressed some of this, but what about the brutality part? I want to talk about this. Someone may say, okay, so yeah, I think I see what you're saying. There's some logic here. An exchange had to happen. We had to be brought. I'll buy that, but... But why such a brutal death? Why, why did the, the Lord have to go through such a gruesome, horrible experience? I don't, I don't get that part. That's a big turnoff. Some people may say that, and I understand that, actually. And I got to just tell you, this one is a bit of a mystery. There's some mysterious elements of the cross that I think are beyond at least my ability to comprehend, to, to, to grab hold of this, to put my mind around this. And at some point, what I have to do, this is me personally, I have to kind of just take a step back and I have to trust that Jesus submitted himself to this because he figured it had to be done that way. And he would not have ever done it if it hadn't had to be that way because he's wise, he's strong, he's smart, he's powerful. He's, he understands all contingencies in his omniscience. And so therefore, if he chose this particular way to, to um, purchase us and to make this great exchange happen, it was because it had to be done that way. And there's a side of that that's a real answer. And that's essentially where I end up, but it's a very unsatisfying answer. It really is if, you just, if you're honest with it. And so in kind of trying to, because knowing I was going to teach this and bring this up, I, I, I identified about 247 verses in the New Testament that um, talk about this just generally and categorically. And I want to go over all 247 of them with you right now. <laughs> Number one. No, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just wrestling with this. And I got one passage that I'm going to offer up to you. And then you can kind of, chew on it and see if it's satisfying. It's from Hebrews. And the passage depicts Jesus as actually being bigger than the universe itself. He's more powerful. He's beyond the universe. It says he's literally upholds, he's upholding the universe by the power of his word. Like, like the universe is just like a sentence to Jesus. He's that grand. He's that big. He's that cosmic. He's that majestic. He's that beyond anything that I could ever understand completely, wrap my mind around. But in the same sentence, it also says that he shed his blood for our sins. 
Here's the passage, it's in Hebrews 1.3. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you have this cosmically grand, universally large and unfathomable Jesus in this passage who also basically said, yeah, I have to be the one to make payment. This cosmically gruesome payment has to be done by the cosmically awesome Jesus. And if you think about this for just a second, all of the brokenness and the sin and the deceit and the adultery and the lying and the, and the killing and the, just the way that we treat each other as human beings and just all of that. And it's overwhelming to think the amount the sheer volume of all of that, and then you just trace that down through human history, and you add all of that up, and then you take all of it that's just been going on in the 32 minutes since I started talking, and then you look forward and you think, well, all the stuff that hasn't been done yet, that's all jacked up. And you take all of that stuff, and then God just squeezes it all down. He compacts it all into this one little moment, and he just dumps it on Christ on Calvary's hill, and in a six-hour period, as long as this timeline is, in a six-hour period, Jesus had to just take care of it all at once. And if you think about it that way, I think you can kind of start to touch the edges of why it had to be so horrible. But then, maybe that's too lofty. I don't, I don't know if I can even fathom that. It's too big. So I'm just gonna share a quick story about how I processed this on a personal level. I was blessed to be on one of the Israel trips led by Pastor Steve. This was about two, three years ago. We had such a great time, such a great trip. And the most holy site in all of Israel is probably a place you've never heard of. It's called the, for, this is for me. For me, the most powerful site was called the Antonia Fortress. I'll show you a picture of it. Here's the Temple Mount. This was how it would have looked 2,000 years ago. It does not look this way now. So this is a recreation based on archaeology and our other data. And you see the temples here, the outer courts, the inner courts, the wall. And then you see this structure here. Herod built this structure for the Romans. And you can see its proximity. This is a Roman garrison fortress. He named it after Mark Antony because he had some kind of a man crush on that guy. He wanted to be sort of in the Roman elite and he never was because he was Herod. And so Antonia Fortress is where Pilate's office was, Pontius Pilate. It's where the Roman garrisons were housed. I have a, another picture of it just kind of blown up. Here it is. This is a recreation. It doesn't look like this now. And in front of this, was where they scourged the prisoners. They did this in public as a deterrent. And none of this is here, except if you go there today, you can go to this site, and you actually go in this, it's been built over and stuff. It's like this kind of weird, goofy building. It looks like a very bad office building that you would maybe find in Fremont or Stockton. <laughs> And you go in this, and you kind of go in, and then there's some stairs, and you take a bunch of rickety stairs down until you get to the floor. You get to the place where the prisoners, this is original, this is, this is like the tile, the street, the cobblestone street. This is where they, they took the whip out, and they beat and scourged Jesus. This is where he shed his blood. 
This is where they shoved the crown of, horn, the crown of thorns on his head. This is where they put the purple robe on his bloody back and then ripped it off. This is where they humiliated him before they strapped the cross on his back. And so we're down on this, in this basement and we're on this floor. It looks a little bit like the concrete floor in this auditorium. And, and I didn't even know where we were because it was a busy day. And I'm like, what is this place? And then Steve tells us what it is. And it immediately hits me where we are. This is holy ground. This is where Jesus shed his blood. This is where the work of salvation took place. This is where the great exchange began. And I began to just be, just be confronted by all of the, the things that I had been reading and studying my whole adult life. And it was all kind of focused right in this moment. And I just flattened myself face first on this pavement. And here was my thinking. My thinking was on an atomic level, somewhere on this floor, somewhere is where Jesus actually, his drops of blood were spilled. And maybe there's some molecules left that have made their way into the pores of this tile. And if I can just get on the floor and if I can just have his blood cover me, and if I can just tell him how sorry I am that I'm the one who put him on that cross. It's my sin. It's not somebody else. It's not some theoretical evil. It's what I have done. And I'm just weeping and I'm wailing and I'm asking God to forgive me. And if I could just touch some of that blood. I'm sorry, Lord. And I'm down there for a few minutes. And then... I began to realize the gift and I began to thank him. I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you, Lord. This is holy ground. The thing is, though, you don't have to go to Israel to have this sense of gratefulness because it's not about a geography. It's simply just trusting him wherever you're at. You never have to go to him. He's going to go to you. And so we can kind of ponder some of these big philosophical things about why the cross, and we can even theologically unpack the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is what this whole message was about. But at the end of the day, what it comes down to is a personal realization that because of my sin and my unrighteousness, I'm part of the problem and he had to die. And all that's left for me is to just say yes and thank you and I'm so grateful and would you carry me to the Father? And so I ask you, friends, some of you have been investigating, some of you have been, some of you are really stubborn. Some of you, any time the pastor says something, you're going to do the opposite. Pastor says, raise your hands, you go like this. Pastor says, hey, let's uh, all give resources to this new effort that we're doing, and you're walking the other way. Pastor says, whatever, and you're like, I'm not going to do this. Some of you are stubborn. I was that way, okay? I'm Swiss. Oh my gosh, we're the most stubborn people on the freaking planet. But let your stubbornness go by the wayside today and just take that step of faith and say yes. This is the best, most amazing, unfair deal, unfair exchange 
because it literally will transform your life now and for eternity. Do that today. For the rest of us, boy, what a great opportunity to just refresh and just thank Jesus for this week. You know, this week is all about his death and his resurrection and all the things that he's done. There's, there's actually some things we're doing on social media this week to help us each day. The campus pastors will post some material and it'll lead us every day from, from Holy Week on into Good Friday and this week and this next weekend. So follow along with us. But here's my prayer for all of us is that we would take this beautiful sacrifice that Christ has done for us and think about what he did, ask for God for further understanding, and then use that as our jet fuel to help us have hope in our life and joy in our life and strength in our life to fully live for him. That's the message for the Christians in this room and we're watching us online. That's how we're gonna walk this out this week. For now, can I just pray for us all? Let's seal this up. Let's pray, let's bow our heads. Oh, Lord, so thank you so much. When we think about, Lord, why you went to the cross, I pray that each of us would just be in awe of exactly what it is that you accomplished for us personally and then help us to kind of see it as a cumulative whole, Lord, so that we could even use that as a more opportunity to worship and to help us see how great a salvation that we have in you. What a great savior that we have. The words don't even really, they fail us to describe how incredible and amazing that you really are, Jesus. We thank you that the great exchange took place, that you willingly disadvantaged yourself, and that what you did in that was, was make us righteous even though we had no right to be. And the trade happened, and the cost was great. But the whole reason you did it was to bring us to God. So Lord, help us to never forget that, that we wouldn't like be Christian so long that that would just become like kind of blah or that's basic stuff and let's move on to the good stuff. No, this is the good stuff. And so Lord, I pray for that today. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen.